Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. For the hundredth time, we are live in the studio. How are you? Hello, I am good. How are you? I'm excited for this. (laughs) This is such a cool milestone. Yeah, I honestly did not think we would get here. No, I mean it's it's definitely weird to say that we have a hundred full episodes. I mean, we technically have more than a hundred at this point, but like our main episodes, we have a hundred of, which is really cool. Yeah, and then we hit two years a few weeks ago or something like that, but. A hundred's way cooler to celebrate, so we're going to do it now. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. So I would like to pat us on the back for keeping it up, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. It's been hard at times, and it's a lot of work. Yeah, congratulations sure. to us. Mostly you. <laughs> and, well, thank you. And thank you to all of you who have been here listening to us, whether it's from day one or, you know, you caught up in the middle. Thank you just for being here and listening to us. Yeah, amen. Yeah, we really appreciate all of you. So... Yeah, before we jump into this week's story, we did want to mention we have officially dropped the poll for bonus episode number nine. So why don't we talk about that briefly? So we have three options, as we always do. And this bonus episode poll, I have included John Benet Ramsey as an option because people have been asking me to do it like all the time, which is so funny because they're like, hey, I know it's not a survival story, but can you please talk about John Benet? So I put it as an option on the poll. Number two is Brandon and Brandy Wiley, who went on their honeymoon, which turned deadly as the newlyweds airplane crashed into the dense Costa Rican rainforest. Again with the plane crash. I know, we're we're about to talk about one too, which is annoying. But uh, our third and final option is Kaylee White. 17-year-old Kaylee White was on her way to visit her friend's house when she was attacked by a stranger. So these are our three options. So far, Brandon and Brandy Wiley are winning, believe it or not. But if you would like to contribute, go over to Patreon and let us know what you want us to tell. Yeah, make your voice heard. It's up to the people. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So for our 100th episode, I wanted to tell a story that people have been asking for for a very long time. So why don't we just jump right into it? Let's do it. Okay. So this is one of the greatest survival stories of the 20th century, for sure. It's kind of funny because I had recently told Alex that I was not going to do any more plane crash stories because <laughs> because I have a lot of flying to do this year, and it gives me great anxiety to talk about the horrifying crashes that we have talked about. Um, however, many people have asked for this story, so I will be telling it. So... <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> That's what and... I'm trying to say. <laughs> you worked extra hard on this one, did you not? You read a whole book and multiple documentaries. Yes, so I've become very well acquainted with this plane crash in particular, which arguably is the most horrifying that we've ever talked about. So why don't we get into it? Mm-hmm. On the afternoon of October 13th, 1972, the Old Christians rugby team arrived at Mendoza Airport to begin their trip for their second rugby tournament in Chile, and everyone was pumped. The team had won the Uruguayan National Championship in 1968 and in 1970, and had also won the Chilean rugby tournament in 1971, so they were eager to get back there and win again. 
However, to make that possible, the team had to charter a plane from the Uruguayan Air Force to fly them from Montevideo to Santiago. They made that possible by selling the extra seats on the plane to their friends and family and supporters, so the whole plane was lively with excitement. The team had chartered the Fairchild number 571 of the Uruguayan Air Force to travel to Santiago, Chile, like I said, and there were 40 passengers on board, five crewmen, and all of their luggage. The boys were dressed in their slacks and sports coats, and the energy on the plane was more like a party than anything else. Yeah, wait, do they have fans on the plane with them? Kind of, yeah. It's like their friends, their supporters, and their family. So it's just like 40... Damn. Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of people who were on the plane that weren't really affiliated with it, but like maybe two or three. people. Yeah, right, exactly. What is going on? Yeah. I like it, though. Yeah, no, seriously, they were like up in the aisles they were throwing the rugby like ball around they were chanting and laughing and just having a really good time like on this flight although the passengers on board were in high spirits this wasn't going to be an easy flight they would be flying over the andes mountains before getting into chile which was a notoriously dangerous flight path and the weather wasn't going to be very good The initial leg of the flight was fine until the pilot of the Fairchild had radioed that he was over Chile and was requesting to begin his descent. He believed that he had already crossed the mountains. However, this call was about to be a fatal mistake. Once the plane had reached 3,000 feet during their descent, they entered a cloud and began experiencing intense turbulence, so the pilot switched on the fasten seatbelt sign. At the time, the energy inside the main cabin was still rowdy and excited, so one of the flight attendants had to go back there and literally, like, scold them and be like, you guys need to sit down and, like, fasten your seatbelts because this is about to be not fun. But even with that, as the plane entered another cloud and the plane began to lurch in a way that alarmed many of the passengers, most of the boys were joking to kind of hide their nervousness, and one of them had picked up the mic for the loudspeaker and said things like, ladies and gentlemen, please pull out your parachutes. Like this was just still a joke. Yeah. Just nervous laughter all around. But at this point, most people were scared. Again, the plane hit an air pocket and dropped a few hundred feet in a matter of seconds. And this fall brought the plane out of the clouds and the view that opened up was not just the valley beneath them like they were expecting to see, but now they could see that they were right next to the black rocky edge of a snow-covered mountain no more than 10 feet away from the tip of the wing. Whoa. They were Wait, so they're going to miss it by 10 feet? Well, they at that point they or, were 10 feet away from from the like they're in front of it? They're next to it. Like they're flying amongst the peaks of the Andes Mountains, which is why it's dangerous to fly around there because you have to fly so high. That way you're not like going to hit into a mountain. Yeah, why don't why don't we take it up to the stratosphere or something? Here? Right, but the pilot was asking to descend because I guess he had thought that he'd already passed these peaks, but when he entered the clouds, he couldn't see the mountains right. that were approaching so they were right up on him. Yeah, so they drop out of this cloud when they hit an air pocket and they essentially see that they are literally 10 feet from colliding with a mountain. Yeah, I'm sure the MC with the mic is silent now. Yeah, they were all praying for their lives. They're all sitting there like they are not... It's not fun anymore. No, this is definitely not fun anymore. It is actively scary. 
One boy asked if it was normal to fly so close to the mountain, and someone else responded that he didn't think so. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. At this point, most of the passengers, like I said, were, were praying for their lives. There was another roar of the engine as the Fairchild tried to ascend once again, but before it could do any more than just the tip of the nose lifting up a little bit, there was a deafening crash as the right wing hit the side of the mountain and immediately broke off. The wing then somersaulted over the fuselage and cut off the tail of the plane. So in a matter of seconds, the right wing has collided with the mountain, has been torn off, and then it tore off the tail of the plane. So when the tail of the plane broke off, a steward and three of the boys who were still strapped to their seats were sucked out of the plane and into the icy air. Oh my god. The entire back of the plane and all the people that were on the back of the plane just flew out of the plane they just got cut out yes by the wing yes oh my god a moment later the left wing broke away as well and a blade of the propeller ripped into the fuselage before falling to the ground inside what was left of the fuselage were just screams of terror and cries for help as the plane hurtled toward the mountain with no wings or tail So basically just the torso of the plane. It's just a torpedo at this point. Yes. But instead of being smashed into pieces against a wall of rock, the plane landed on its belly in a steep valley and slid like a toboggan on the deep snow. Wait, so they landed like more or less perfectly with the slope? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Oh my God, how lucky. I know. It landed on its like on its belly and was just like sliding. Upon impact, two more boys were sucked out of the back of the plane, and the rest remained in the fuselage as it sped down the valley. The force of the deceleration caused all of the seats in the cabin to break loose from the floor and move forward, crushing the passengers as they waited for the plane to smash into a rock face. One boy, Gustavo Zerbino, managed to stand up in the aisle to avoid being crushed by the seat, and pressed his hands against the ceiling and was just like screaming as this plane was torpedoing down the valley. But finally, it came to a stop. And there was this moment of stillness and silence. Immediately, team captain Marcelo Perez started helping free people from the wreckage because the people who were not as intensely injured as many people were immediately jumped into action. And thankfully, two of the boys who were on the team were medical students. Gustavo Zerbino, who was a first-year medical student, and Roberto Canessa, who was a second-year, did what they could for the injured. But, I mean, a first- and second-year medical student, at this point, they felt, at least, that they were very underqualified to be helping with such intense injuries. Yeah, I mean, for sure, but better than nothing. Better, for sure, better than nothing. Soon, some of the boys started smelling gas fumes in the wreckage, which was terrifying because they thought it was possible that the plane might explode. So a few of them who weren't very injured jumped out of the gaping hole in the back of the cabin. But when they jumped out, they found themselves up to their thighs in snow, which made it incredibly difficult to move around outside. But they managed to get a few feet away from the plane. 
And these boys sat on pieces of luggage and lit cigarettes as they looked out and saw that they were stranded in the middle of nowhere. Bro, okay, so we smelled gas and we're lighting up a cig? You know, it's funny because I actually didn't even think about that. They were like, oh no, gas. And then they're like, actually, let's need a, light need up. A smoke, man. <laughs> Guys. But I actually was thinking, like, I don't smoke cigarettes, but if I were in a plane crash like that, I would immediately... <laughs> yeah, no, I'm lighting up. <laughs> I would immediately... I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah, right. But yeah, they were sitting on luggage and smoking a cigarette, just looking out at the nothingness that surrounded them. All around them was snow, and on three sides, there was sheer gray walls of mountains. However, the plane had slid so far down the valley that these mountains were very far away from where they had landed. And it was bitterly cold. Many of the boys were in just short sleeve shirts, or they had on a light sport coat or blazer. But none of them were dressed for the sub-zero temperatures, so those who could walk went through the scattered luggage to find sweaters and warmer clothing to bundle up as best as they could. Inside the plane, almost everyone had some kind of injury. Some were obviously more severe than others, and some of the passengers in the plane had already been killed by being crushed from the seats. I'm sorry, I didn't fully understand the seat crushing part. So when the plane made contact with the ground and started sliding down the mountain, the seats came up from the floor. In that plane, you could remove the seats because they used it as a cargo plane sometimes. So oh. the seats were removable, and because of that, they all came up from the floor and shot forward, crushing everyone who was in the seats, which was almost everyone except for Gustavo, who stood up. So everyone had some kind of injury. Some were way more severe than others, and some people were actually killed in this crushing of the, so the seats. Oof. But yeah, so that, I'm sorry if that wasn't clear, but yeah, the seats could come up. Gotcha. At the time of the crash, 32 of the 45 passengers survived, many of which were injured, but the medical students did what they could for the living. When the seats all came up from the floor and smashed forward upon impact, it had broken limbs, people had cuts all over their bodies, they had head injuries, one of the boys had a metal pipe sticking out of his stomach. And that was actually crazy because he had this metal pipe sticking out of him, but he stood up and asked Zerbina if it was serious. And Zerbina told him, no, it'll be totally fine. Just go help someone. And as this guy turned away to go help someone, Zerbina ripped the pipe out of his stomach and then grabbed a shirt and told him to tie it tightly around himself and he would get to him later. Oh my god. So he basically just distracted him and was like, it'll be fine, ripped it out, and then just like tied it and was like, go sit down. Was it I'll... like through his back? It wasn't completely through his back, but it was a metal pipe sticking out of his abdomen. Oh, dude. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's probably the best course of action for him. I don't know. I mean, I, mean I... I guess actually maybe you should have left it in there, but. That's kind of what I've always heard is like if you get impaled or you get stabbed or something like that, you're supposed to like leave it in because if you take it out, you could do far more damage than if you just left it in. Right. But at that point, they weren't going to like get to a hospital anytime soon. So yeah, I guess there's no like gentle way to remove no. it. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're doing the best they can. Exactly. Although it actually worked out quite well for this guy because he did actually end up recovering from this 
Okay. Yeah. So we'll we'll get into more of that later. So it, it was the right call, but it's still just crazy to think about. Just ripped a pipe out of him. Yeah. <laughs> Is this serious? <laughs> I mean, he was in shock. I mean, yeah. It's just funny that he asked that. Yeah. One of the guys was able to climb around to the front of the plane and saw that one of the pilots had already been killed, but the other was very close to death. However, he was still alive. The dashboard with all the knobs and buttons, I didn't know what to call it. The the control the con- board. The control board. Thank you. Um, <laughs> that's also a guess. Well, I mean, that sounds more right than the dashboard with the knobs and the buttons. That's what I wrote down. Anyway... The control panel was basically in this co-pilot's chest. So he was almost dead, but he was still alive for the moment. And this player had attempted to use the radio to call to Santiago, but there was no power. And in the last moments that this co-pilot was alive, they were able to ask him, how do we power this radio and he was like oh the batteries are in the tail of the plane but if we remember the tail of the plane had been severed and fell off god only knows where so there were no batteries in this section of the plane that they were in and also before he died he told them that chile was to the west that was basically his final words and then he unfortunately also passed away but they did manage to get some kind of useful information which is good it's all just it's all terrible yeah With that little bit of information might have helped save them, though. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The plane had crashed about half past three in the afternoon, and by four o'clock, it began to snow. As soon as that happened, the boys knew that even if there was a search party out for them, they wouldn't have been seen in these conditions. It was early spring in the Southern Hemisphere, and the Andes had suffered exceptionally heavy snowfall that season. Not only were the conditions bad for flying, but the roof of the plane was white. So there was very little chance that it would be spotted. Also, to fly safely over that area, any plane would need to be extremely high up as to not collide with a mountain. So things were not looking good. There was almost no chance that someone flying that high would see a white airplane amongst the mountains of snow. Yeah, and it would have to be a clear day. Exactly. They did what they could to bundle up. They searched through luggage to find sweaters and extra pairs of pants. They also took jackets off of the dead because they weren't going to need them anymore. And they had realized that the covers of the seats could be unzipped and taken off, so they got the idea to use them as makeshift blankets. They also found a bunch of bottles of wine the pilots had gotten in Mendoza, so they had opened a few of those to drink something and hopefully warm themselves up. When night came, however, things got even worse. At 4,000 meters, the temperature could drop at night to negative 40 degrees, Both Celsius and Fahrenheit, because surprisingly enough, this is where the two temperature scales are equal. I was actually just about to say that. That is so funny, because I literally looked this up Thursday. Did you? Today is Saturday. Why? I don't know. We were at, uh, we were getting a team lunch, and I was talking to some of my coworkers from Europe, and he was like, yeah, it's not cold till it's negative 40 and i was like celsius or fahrenheit he's like celsius i was like oh i got like i'm trying to like do the conversion yeah and i'm like oh it's the same it is the same i was like that's insane yeah it's so funny that i literally realized that two days ago but yeah negative 40 
for everyone is just just fucking just cold. fucking cold <laughs> i was just gonna say that good yeah so it was negative 40 at night and they had no nothing nothing they had nothing to prepare them for that kind of temperature the snow was pouring into the cabin from the gaping hole and the guys were able to move the seats out of the cabin that way they could lie on the ground and try to get some sleep Although that wasn't happening because even with the seats gone, the amount of people that were crammed in there made it like they were basically a can of sardines, which was good in that they were using body heat to keep each other warm, but definitely not comfortable. If anyone shifted even slightly, the entire group was affected. Also, the first night was terrible because people were severely injured and in an immense amount of pain. And there was actually one woman in particular who was wailing all night long due to the pain of her injuries, so nobody slept at all. In the middle of the night, they were able to pile up the luggage at the hole at the back of the plane the best they could to try to block out some of the cold, but that only did so much. By the next day, October 14th, five people had died from their injuries and the plane was almost half buried in snow. The guys carried out the bodies of the dead out of the cabin and put them in a line outside, which left 27 people. They quickly agreed that whatever food and drink they had needed to be rationed, which was not much. After salvaging what they could from the plane and the luggage, they found three more bottles of wine, a bottle of whiskey, a bottle of creme de menthe, a bottle of cherry brandy, and a hip flask of whiskey, which was already half gone. And for food, they had nine bars of chocolate, five bars of nougat, some caramels, which had been scattered over the floor of the cabin, some dates and dried plums, which were also scattered, a packet of salted biscuits, two tins of mussels, and one tin of salted almonds, and a small jar of each peach, apple, and blackberry jam which was not a lot of food for 27 people. Yeah. And that meant for them that at each meal, they would get a single square of chocolate and a cap from a deodorant can filled with wine. And that was it. That afternoon, they had heard a plane flying overhead, but didn't actually see it because it was like overcast and there were clouds. So nothing came of that. The Chilean Air Force was out looking for them, but as they searched the flight path of the Fairchild, they didn't find anything. The next morning, Sunday, October 15th, they woke to a clear blue sky, finally, which gave them hope that today would be the day that they were spotted and rescued. However, their most pressing need at the time was for water. They were surrounded by snow, but it was difficult to melt in sufficient quantities to quench their thirst. They had a few different tactics, but they were using more energy than they had to get such small amounts of water. However, one of the players, Adolfo Strouch, figured something out. After looking around for something to hold the snow, he found a rectangle of aluminum foil about two feet wide, which came from inside the back of a smashed seat. So he was able to bend it up to form a shallow bowl, and then he twisted the corner to make a spout. After that, he put some snow in it and positioned it in the sun, and in a short amount of time, 
drops of water started appearing in the spout until it turned into a steady stream that fed into a bottle that Adolfo had held underneath it. Fuck yeah. Yeah, so now they can at least make some water, which is good. So it was like the sunlight was melting it with the aluminum? Yeah, so they were using the reflection of the sun to melt the snow. Oh, okay. That was a much better tactic because before they were like putting snow into the bottle like into whatever bottle or container they had and like shaking it up and using up a ton of energy but i mean they were eating only a square of chocolate and like a sip of wine so they knew that that was not a sustainable way to continue to make water so now they had a good way to do it which is the most important thing and not only that but they could make a ton more of these water making devices so they had a bunch set up so they always had water which is good Shortly after noon, the guys heard a plane above them once again, and they all ran out of the cabin to try to signal. And they waved their jackets and pieces of metal, anything they could to be seen. And as they were watching this plane, it looked like the plane had dipped its wings, which usually is used as a signal to say, I see you. So the group erupted into cheering and celebrating because they believed that they had been seen and it was only a matter of time before they were rescued. That night, the guys went to bed extremely happy. They debated when the helicopter would arrive for them, if it would happen in the morning or the day after. And since they were being rescued, many of the guys drank the alcohol that they had and ate much of what was left of the chocolate bars. I mean... I get it. I might have done the same thing, but from the way you're saying it, seems like that was a bad call. Definitely a bad call. I uh, yeah. But, I also I mean, can understand where they were coming from. They're like, oh, we're we're being rescued, so why not? Yeah. I mean, why else would the plane tip its wings like that? Exactly. That's what they were all thinking. But the next day, when the helicopter never came, and it came time for a meal, quote unquote. The captain, Marcello, opened the box that they had been keeping their food stash in and saw that almost all of their wine and food had been finished off, and he lost it. He started screaming at the group that whoever did it should just take a knife and kill them all because that's essentially what they had done. There was no guarantee that the rescue team was coming that day or that they even saw them in the first place, and now they had even less food than they did before. And actually, the night before, when the guys were eating the chocolate and drinking the wine, one of the men on board, Javier Methal, had asked them if they should be doing that, but they basically just laughed him off. And so almost everyone was to blame for this depleting of resources. They were in a terrible predicament because by that time, they had started to realize that they hadn't been seen. They had been out there for five days already, And even if the actual rescue was going to take longer than just that one day, they should have dropped supplies for the guys to hold them over, which didn't happen. Because there was a lot of discussion of like, okay, maybe they need to send out a plane later on, or they're going to do it tomorrow, or there's going to be a land rescue. They were debating how long this rescue was going to take. But then one of the guys was like, it's not going to happen. They didn't give us any supplies, so they didn't see us. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, it does. And that definitely brought down group morale, but he was right. They had not been seen. By Sunday, October 22nd, it had been 10 days. 
one of the guys, Roy Harley, had found a transistor radio between two seats and using his very limited knowledge of electronics was able to construct a hi-fi system that made it work. It was difficult to get a signal between the huge mountains, but Roy made an aerial with strands of wire from the plane's electric circuits. So as they turned the dial on the little radio and moved around these wires, they were able to get a few scraps of broadcast from Chile. Wow. So he just made that himself? Pretty much. That's incredible. I know. They almost never heard anything about the progress of the search because... By that point, the search had actually been called off. After eight days, the search had actually been called off, and they were on day 10. At that point, they had almost no food supplies, and running on a ration of a scrap of chocolate and a capful of wine was almost more torturous than not eating anything at all. Why? Because it was like nothing. They were having a single piece of chocolate and a sip of wine. I don't know, I just think better than nothing. Well, yeah, that's a good way to look at it, but they were not feeling satiated. Is that the right word? And not feeling full. Not feeling yeah, good. For sure. But that's when many of them started to realize that if they were going to survive, they would have to eat the bodies of those that had died in the crash. This was a tough thing to talk about. And although many of them separately had been thinking about it, the conversation was brought up very gradually. The conversation had started with Fernando Parado, who the guys called Nando. He had boarded the Fairchild with his younger sister and his mother, who were going to, you know, watch him play in the tournament in Chile. And in the crash, his mother had died, and then his sister had died due to her injuries on the ninth day. So both of them had very tragically passed away. When his sister died, Nando had lost it. He was extremely angry, and rightfully so. And he said he was going to eat the pilot because he said, they got us into this mess. So I don't care if I use him as fuel. May I wager that's a fair point? I understand where he's coming from. I understand the logic. I do. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, but that's kind of where the conversation was brought up because Uh, it was like, okay, well, Nando said he's going to eat the pilot. And then they're like, well, let's, let's think about this here. We have no food and... There are plenty of dead. Yeah, they're kind of out of options, right? It's not like there's fruit and vegetables being grown here. No, they were snow. Yeah, they were on a snow-covered mountain. There was absolutely nothing to eat. They actually tried to eat like the soil or something. Like they they found something that they tried to eat, but it was dirt, (laughs) so they couldn't eat dirt. I mean, yeah, that's their only option. Exactly. So slowly, that conversation made it around to others. And they actually entertained the idea of eating the dead. At first, half of the group was completely opposed. These were friends and family, so that was a horrifying thought. And also, they were very religious, so they were worried what God would think of them. And also, it's just a very taboo thing to think about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not your first instinct, but in a survival situation that's so severe you have to kind of consider your your options. Yeah, I mean, what you'll do on day 10 versus day 20 is very different. Definitely. So half of them were like, I could never do that. But Kinesa, who had the medical background, was able to explain to the group that each time they moved, they were using up a part of their own body. And soon they'd be so weak that they couldn't do anything at all. 
He framed it like the bodies of the dead were just meat. Their souls had left their bodies, and all that was left was just a carcass, which is no different than eating the body of a dead animal. They had been talking about trying to find the tail of the plane, or even trying to hike out of the mountain to try to find help, and that wasn't something they could do on a piece of chocolate and a sip of wine. Those in the group who were more on board with the idea had started to talk about how if they died, they would want their friends to use their bodies to survive. And Zerbino actually said to the group that if he died and they didn't eat him, he would come back as a ghost and kick them in the ass. (laughs) So at this point, they're like, listen, these are our friends and our family. It is horrifying, but their souls are in heaven. It is just their bodies. And I think that because they love us so much, they would want us to do anything we could to survive. Yeah, I think that's where I would be at. Yeah. It's like, if I die, you guys can eat me. Exactly. And, you know, if you do, like, make it nice. Yeah. Yeah medium Cook rare me up. okay yeah not well done no right make it a stew <laughs> this discussion had continued most of the day but by mid-afternoon they needed to either act on the idea or not at all no one moved because nobody wanted to be the first one to make a cut but finally Kanessa walked over to the bodies in the snow with a sharp piece of glass Most of the bodies were covered with snow except for one person's butt that had been sticking up out of the snow. So Knessa knelt down, cut off the clothes in the way, and cut into the flesh. He then stood up with a small piece, put it in his mouth, and swallowed it. A few of them joined directly after, but much of the group was still hesitant. Later that evening, however, a bigger group came out of the plane to follow suit, They also put a bunch of small pieces on the roof of the plane. That way they would dry out and be a little bit more palatable than just eating raw frozen flesh. But the only two people who refused to eat from the bodies was Javier Methal and his wife Liliana, who decided that while there was any alternative, they would not do that. So the next morning, Marcelo and Roy had begun fiddling with the radio again when they heard that the search for them had been officially called off. This was obviously devastating news, but Marcelo, who was basically in charge of the group, knew that he had to tell the others. And he kind of framed it as good news. He told them he had good news. They had called off the search. And the others who were, you know, sitting in the plane at this point were like, why the hell would that be good news? And he told them, because now we're going to get out of here on our own. Okay. So he's like, we're going to keep it optimistic. Keep it light, keep it bright, you know? That's a really smart way to frame it because you got to keep, like, morale's all you got. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know, it's a really interesting. I imagine he's a good leader. Yeah. I don't know that I would have been able to frame it that way. No, I'd be more focused on the we're fucked part. Me too. From that point on, getting themselves out of there became their new obsession. They planned that a group of the fittest among them should set off to either see what was over the mountain to the west or find the tail of the plane. Those who were wounded and still alive were getting worse, and it seemed more pressing than ever for them to make moves. 
So three of them decided that they were going to follow the track of the plane back up the mountain. And these were really strong rugby players, but they had barely eaten for 11 days. But they knew that finding the batteries in the tail of the plane was really their only way out of there. Walking in the snow was extremely difficult since it went up to their thighs. However, they figured out that they could use cushions from the seats and strap them to their feet to use them as makeshift snowshoes. It wasn't great and was really hard to walk with, but it was better than being up to your thighs in snow. Finally, the guys managed to make it farther up the mountain where they reached a small plateau and saw a seat from the plane that was face down in the snow that had like fallen out of the back. And the three of them pulled the seat up, but to their horror, one of the passengers was still strapped to the seat. And they took this person's wallet and their chain necklace to give to their family, and then they just had to like leave him there. Since they didn't find the tail before dark, the three of them had to huddle together against a rock and try to survive the cold with no shelter at all. The next morning, since they still weren't at the summit and there was no sign of any other wreckage and another night out there definitely would have killed them, they decided they had to turn back. The way back was much easier since they could use their cushions as sleds. So they literally sled back down the mountain to the Fairchild and their friends and, you know, colleagues, whatever, had to watch them (laughs) sled back down the mountain, which was actually kind of nice. Like it was a little bit of a happy moment, but yeah, I mean, I just imagine you're at base camp. Yeah. You just see three of them (laughs) sledding down the mountain. Yeah. They're like, whoa, it's ridiculous. (laughs) Right. But I mean, you gotta you gotta inject a little bit of happiness bit of wherever you can. It's like turn it into a snow resort, right? Even though that was a bit of a silly moment, overall their mission was unsuccessful, so it wasn't great news. Nothing had come of this expedition, and also it had almost killed three of their strongest men. By the seventeenth day, the men were in better spirits. They were planning a new expedition, and they knew that Chile was to the west. And if they couldn't find the tail, they needed to try and go west. That day passed, and by 4 p.m. the sun had gone down, and the group huddled together in the fuselage to keep warm for the night. Once everyone was asleep, Javier and Liliana Methal, who had initially said they would not eat the bodies of the dead, came to the decision that they wanted to survive for their children and even talked about having another one once they got out of there. They slept as best as they could, and a few of the guys were still awake and shifting sleeping positions when they felt a faint vibration. Only a moment later, there was a loud crash, the sound of metal falling to the ground, which made Roy Harley jump up because it had startled him. And before he knew what actually happened, he was completely smothered by snow. There had been an avalanche. No way. Yes, and now the entire cabin of the plane was completely filled with snow, and all of Roy's friends had been asleep on the ground and were completely buried. Immediately, he began to dig people out, starting with Carlitos, who had been asleep next to him. He managed to get his face uncovered, but was so desperate to get the others out, he moved on to Canessa, who had also been asleep nearby. 
and thankfully Kinesa was able to be freed from the snow and jumped in to help Roy uncover their other friends. But it was a complete frenzy. There was barely any room for the guys to dig and uncover people because the snow had come in almost entirely to the ceiling of the cabin. One by one, the guys were able to uncover each other. However, in the time it took them to uncover everyone, eight of them had died under the snow, either from being crushed or smothered, including the captain of their team, Marcelo, and Liliana Methal, which was incredibly sad because she had finally come around to eating with the group and was even talking about having a baby. I mean, to lose any of them was incredibly sad, but this was just such a monumental moment for them because even in their small shelter where they were huddled together, they were not safe. There had been 27 of them alive before the avalanche, and now they were down to 19 in only a matter of minutes. Those who survived almost wished they had been killed rather than continue living in such physical and emotional suffering. And their wish almost came true because only an hour later, a second avalanche hit the plane. Can these people catch a break? No. Like, no. Two avalanches? Yes, in a matter of an hour. That's, That's so unlucky. Do you think it might have been because of the hikers? I doubt it. Because if I mean, it, me too, if but they was, did sled down the hill. Yeah, but if it was caused by the hikers, it would have happened when they were, like, up on the mountain and, like, you know, doing their thing. Yeah, I guess so. Because they were, at this point, they were all asleep and, like, you know, laying down and trying to get some rest. But, yeah. and I mean, can you even believe how lucky it was that the piece of metal fell from the vibration and Roy Harley just so happened to jump up? If he wasn't standing... None of them would have made it. Yeah, just lucky enough. It's insane. But even though there was a second avalanche that hit the plane, thankfully no more snow came inside because it had already been filled. Yeah, I was going to say, did the second avalanche even really do anything or was it already plugged? It was already plugged, but it just put more snow on top of them, which was still a very scary thought because they had no idea if the pl- if the snow on top of the plane was a foot deep or 12 feet deep. Yeah. That night was endless. There was barely any room to sit or stand, and they were trapped in the dark with the dead bodies and the stale air. By the next morning, they were able to poke a steel pole through the roof to get some ventilation. That way they could breathe because they were almost like out of oxygen. And thankfully, Roy was able to break through the front windows of the plane and break through the snow to the daylight. But when he lifted his head through the hole, he was immediately stung by the cold wind and snow. They were stuck down there for the time being because there was a blizzard above them. And they would be killed in the cold if they attempted to leave now. So all they could do was sit down there and suck on snow and wait for the storm and wait for the storm to die down. And actually two guys had their birthdays down there. What a birthday, man. I know. And the way they celebrated was they stuck a cigarette in a handful of snow and they just like sang to them with this sad little cigarette. I mean, it's better than nothing. Better than nothing. I guess. Yeah. You gotta make what you make do with what you can. I guess. Yeah. So they still have cigarettes? Yeah, they actually had a lot of cigarettes because someone's suitcase just had like cartons and cartons and cartons of cigarettes. So they had quite a bit. 
I don't know, I guess maybe it warms you up a little bit. Yeah, it's better than nothing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So the group had been down there in this covered up plane for two days at that point and had eaten nothing. The bodies of those who had been killed in the crash were outside and they were still stuck in the plane. So they had no choice but to uncover one of the bodies of their friends who had been killed in the avalanche and cut meat off of them in front of everyone. By November 1st, the weather was finally clear enough that they could leave and dig a second tunnel out of the back of the plane. By this point, the plan for the fittest to go west was of utmost importance. They decided those who would be going on the expedition would get larger portions of meat than the rest of them, that way they could build up as much strength as they could for the journey. They were also given the best sleeping arrangements, and they were allowed to rest as much as they wanted or that they could. That way they would be as ready as possible for this trip. The problem was, it was still bitterly cold, especially at night, and they knew that they wouldn't survive the trip, so they decided to wait for the end of November for their trip west. A few of their teammates had their legs injured in the crash, and basically spent all day every day in hammocks that they had constructed in the plane that way they could just recover recover yeah they could get their wounds tended to but without you know proper medical equipment or care their wounds became severely infected and after that amount of time they passed due to their injuries and the death of their friend was just another really terrible wake-up call Because at this point, they're seeing that they're basically getting killed one by one. I mean, some of them in like major events, but one by one, they're just dying. So by November 15th, they felt the very real urgency to make another attempt at an expedition. Canessa Nando and Antonio Vizantine, or Tintin, as they called him, were selected as the three who were going to go on this expedition. And each of them assembled three pairs of pants, a t-shirt, two sweaters, and an overcoat. They each had makeshift pairs of sunglasses that they had constructed from the glare shield in the cockpit, and they made mittens out of seat covers, and Tintin got the pilot's helmet. The most important thing was to keep their feet warm, and their solution to this problem was something that I was not expecting. They used an extra layer of fat and skin from the dead bodies. And they essentially made socks with that. Socks of fat? They made, yeah, like flesh socks. Dude. I, when I read that, I was like, is this real? Like what the hell? Oh, chills. That's so disgusting to me. Yeah. But I mean, they needed to keep their feet warm. I know. I was thinking... I guess it was ultimately effective, but I would have thought you'd use the hair from people or the cushions from the seats or anything else. Yeah, I mean, they were just using what they had. Yeah. And uh, it did kind of work. Um, That's insane. Yeah. They knew that Chile was to the west, but they couldn't directly go west since it was basically sheer rock face. So to go west, they had to begin by going east, which was terrible for them. They had to go northeast to like go around the mountain to then go west. So this was going to be a major expedition. 
On the morning of Friday, November 17th, after five weeks on the mountain, the three set off with knapsacks full of liver and meat stuffed into rugby socks, a bottle of water each, and cushions they could use as snowshoes and whatever they could carry to keep themselves warm. Kinesa led the expedition, and the three of them made quick progress to the northeast. After some time, the three of them saw that about a hundred yards ahead of them was the tail of the Fairchild. And this was like finding treasure. They immediately ran up to it and started rummaging through the scattered luggage to see what they could find. They found jeans and sweaters and socks and boots, balaclavas, they found some comic books, a box of Coca-Cola, and more boxes of chocolate. They each had a few pieces of chocolate before agreeing that they should ration the rest, but they were able to change out of their wet clothes and take off their flesh socks for some wool socks. Yeah, which Big is win. a positive. Big win. Yeah, definitely a positive. After changing, they immediately started looking for the battery that the pilot had initially told them about. And they did find it, but it was huge and way heavier than they could have managed to carry back to the group. So that night, they slept like babies in the tail. However, in the days following, they tried to push forward to go west, but they knew that they would freeze if they kept going. So they decided to head back to the group and this time they could try to bring the big radio to the battery in the tail. That way they could attempt to get it to work and hopefully make contact with someone. But the group wasn't super jazzed to see them come back. When they got back, they told the group that they had found the tail and that they were going to bring the radio to the battery in the tail. But this time they said that they needed to bring Roy Harley with them, since he was supposed to be the quote-unquote radio expert. And by expert, they meant that he had helped a friend fix a stereo one time. But he was the best that they had. So Roy wanted nothing to do with this expedition. He begged them and cried and just whined. He did not want to go. And they essentially were like, you are coming and we will drag you by your hair if you do not, like, cooperate. So Roy had to go, but he made it very known that he did not want to be there. He was extremely vocal and the entire time whined and cried, which, as you can imagine, was incredibly annoying to the three guys who were, like, leading this expedition. They basically hated his guts by the end of that trip. But finally, they made it to the tail once again, and they set a little fire and went to bed. Because they were actually able to set little fires to keep themselves warm with, like, money, stray pieces of wood, like, whatever they could. They couldn't do it all the time, but they were able to every once in a while, which is good. So they set a little fire, and they went to bed. By the next morning, Kinesa and Roy had the task of figuring out how to hook up the transmitter with the battery, but this was not going to be an easy task since the transmitter had about 40 different wires coming off of it, and only a few of them were labeled. Tintin had actually found an instruction manual for the Fairchild in the snow, but the only bit of pages that had been torn out and destroyed in the wind was the chapter that they needed. Are you kidding me? Can you believe? Dude, that's the only chapter. Yeah, the only few pages they needed were the pages that were ripped out in the snow and the wind. Yeah, so it's almost like God is taunting them. Seriously. Is it not? Yeah, everything that could have gone wrong has gone wrong. 
Like, exactly. it's almost comical that just the part that they needed in the book was the part that was destroyed. Knessa and Roy had made all the necessary connections between the battery and radio, but they still couldn't pick up any signal. When that wasn't working, they connected the transistor radio to the battery and could basically get any station in Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay that they wanted, which was when they heard an announcement that the search for them was going to be restarted. Oh, okay. Hell yeah. yeah. That was exciting news. And by the next morning, enough snow had melted around the tail that the entire thing was incredibly unstable, and the guys worried that if it melted too much, the entire thing could shoot down the mountain. So they decided to give up on the transmitter and just head back. They actually almost didn't make it back because they got caught in a storm and Roy literally was like sitting in the snow and was like, I can't go on. And Nando had to physically pull him up and pull him back to the camp, which was so ridiculous because it's already difficult enough to fight through that storm in the snow as one person, but now he had to do it for two. Yeah, literally put the team on his back. Yeah. But thank God he did, because Roy would have just died. But toward the end of the first week of December, it had been 56 days up on the mountain. The weather had finally started to warm up, which was good in that they weren't constantly battling hypothermia, but bad because their food source wouldn't last in the heat. The snow was definitely not gone completely, but it was melting, so they had to bury their dead further down in the snow to keep them from rotting. The news of the search restarting had definitely made it more difficult to continue the idea of this expedition west. Each time the men attempted to leave, they were risking their lives so intensely, and almost every time they had left, they almost died. Every single time. Didn't matter who it was, what was happening, like, they either got caught in a storm, or something terrible happened, like, it just, they had terrible luck. And also, they were human, battling the Andes Mountains in the snow and in blizzards, and they didn't really have any, like, actual winter gear. Yeah. There's no gear. They don't have any experience, I imagine. No. Hiking in a mountain. Definitely not. Very dangerous. Yeah, and the altitude alone made it extremely difficult to do anything and, Mm -hmm. like, breathe, you know? But the urgency to be found was ever-present now that their food source was starting to rot. And the fact that they had managed to survive eight weeks in some of the most extreme inhumane conditions made them want to prove that they could also escape on their own. When the group talked about search restarting and what they should do, one of them made the point that these search parties weren't looking for survivors. They were looking for bodies, so it could take way longer than they could last out there. So they came to the decision that the Expedition West was still a must. However, this time they were going to construct a big sleeping bag that the three men could use to keep warm at night. They had sewn together insulation material that they found in the tail with thread and electrical wires that would keep them from literally freezing to death. And so it was decided Nando, Canessa, and Tintin would head out on their final expedition for help. But each time Nando would try to mobilize their group, Canessa would say that the sleeping bag wasn't ready or they should wait for the weather to warm up, which were logical things, but he just didn't want to risk his life again out there and was basically just trying to stall for as long as he could. 
One useful thing that came of that, though, was the guys had constructed a huge cross in the snow near the plane and had lined it with anything they could, including bright yellow and green jackets, so whoever flew over could hopefully spot that. However, the group couldn't stall anymore once another one of their friends had died. Numa Turkati had passed, and again, it became more real that with each day that passed, it could mean the difference between their death and their survival. So with that, they agreed that the next day they would start their final expedition due west to Chile. The next morning at 5 a.m., 61 days after the crash, Kinesa, Nando, and Tintin prepared to go. They each wore multiple pairs of pants, sweaters, four pairs of socks, coats, sunglasses, and they brought enough meat to last them each 10 days. But before leaving that morning, Nando had told his friends that he'd allow them to use the bodies of his mother and sister as food if they needed, because they were a couple of bodies that the group had decided they wouldn't eat out of respect for the people who were still living and were related to them and things like that. But since Nando wasn't going to be there, and this really was life or death, he gave them the permission to to do that, which I think shows the type of person that he is. I mean, he's very clearly been a leader through all of this and is incredibly brave and selfless, but like that alone is really something. Yeah, I can't imagine that sentence coming out of my mouth. No. So, very desperate times. Yes, Finally, Nando Tintin and Kinesa began climbing the mountain to the west, and after the first day, they were still nowhere near the top. They could actually still see the Fairchild below them, but the altitude that they were climbing at made it so extremely difficult to breathe, and they were climbing a mountain that was pretty much vertical. The air was much thinner up there, so each breath they took had much less oxygen than it does at sea level. And that kind of environment reduces blood flow to the heart and muscles, which can lead to your brain swelling, which will eventually kill you. But they kept going literally one step at a time. During portions of the climb, they physically couldn't lift their legs without using their arms to pull their legs and keep moving forward that way. So this was definitely a difficult climb. You think? can't even imagine not being able to lift your leg. Yeah. The lack of oxygen at that altitude not only made it really difficult to breathe, which was like bad for your brain swelling and stuff like that, but it it made it so much harder to like make your muscles function. Yeah. Get blood flow to your limbs. Exactly. So since the search had been resumed, the Chilean Air Force had sent up a special surveillance plane and that plane had recorded an unmistakably human sign there was a huge cross in the snow. But after speaking with officials in Argentina, they discovered that this cross was made up of instruments used to measure snow levels, so they knew how much water to expect in the summer. So they did, in fact, find a cross in the snow, but it was not the boy's cross. Oh. (laughs) Isn't that ridiculous? So they heard that on the radio? Yes. They were like, oh my god, they found a cross. And then... It it, wasn't there. No, yes. Oh my god. I mean, Avalanche. Two. The chapter two. Yeah. Chapter ripped out. The I mean, the crash itself. Yeah. Now this. It's just ridiculous, man. Seriously. By this point, it was day 63. The three men thought they would climb the mountain in one day, and once they reached the top, they'd see the valley of Chile or the lights of a city, but that definitely was not the case. 
they were climbing nearly vertical mountainside. And when they finally reached the top, they saw only more snowy mountains that seemed to go on forever. They had thought that the crash site was on the western edge of the mountains on the border of Chile, but really they were still on the Argentina side in the middle of the Andes Mountains. After three days of climbing, the men were devastated, but they decided they had no choice but to keep pushing forward. They decided to send Tintin back, that way they could take his ration of food and get as far as possible before running out. And actually when Kinesa and Nando were like, hey, we think that we want to send you back, that way we have the best possible chance of making our food last, Tintin was like, oh really? Okay, see you later. <laughs> he was like, okay. <laughs> he didn't even fight. Yeah, no, he's like, oh, okay, great, sounds good. Wow. And like went back. That's funny. Yeah. Can't blame him. No, seriously. But they had to decide which way to go, because clearly West was going to lead them into more snowy mountains, and Kinesa had seen what he thought was a road on a different mountain below them. The two actually almost split up at that point, but Nando convinced him that they needed to keep heading West. So each day that passed proved to be more and more difficult. All they did was walk and rest. If they had stopped and thought about their journey at any point, they wouldn't have been able to keep going. Their muscles cramped from overexertion. They got weaker and weaker as time went on, to the point where they were literally crawling up the mountain. After seven days of nonstop climbing, Kinesa and Nando were barely able to keep moving forward, but they said they kept going because they were almost in a trance. They never thought about how hard what they were doing actually was, but they were almost at their physical limit. On day 69, the two had been going for nine days. However, they had finally crossed over from just snow and rock and mountain to solely rocks, and then they made it to a river where they finally saw green. And crossing that threshold was huge for them because it felt like they could have hope again. It felt like they were crossing over into the land of the living. So after following that river, the two had come across cows, which Nando knew were not wild cows. They belonged to someone. And that proved to be true when they saw axe marks on a nearby stump. And finally, the two had spotted a man on a horse in the distance. They immediately started running and yelling for help, but when they made it to where they thought the man was, they didn't see him until they turned around and saw that there was not one, but three men on horses. That was the first moment that Nando believed that he was going to live. The men hesitated, and then yelled to the boys that they would come back tomorrow to help them. <laughs> I guess they weren't prepared to help them at that point. So all Nando and Kinesa could do was set up camp. Which, oh, you're serious. They oh, just came back. Oh, I'm serious. Yeah, they had to sleep the night on that river. Wow. Yeah, but this was a much more pleasant evening than the rest of their 70 nights, considering now it was on grass. And they also decided that they could pretty much eat the rest of their food. Mm. So they were they went to bed full and like warm and in the grass. So definitely an improvement. Definitely. The next day, the group of horsemen did come back, and they carried Nando and Kinesa to a local village where they were fed the first real food that they had eaten in 70 days. Wow. I can't imagine how good that tastes. Yeah. 
Oh no, in 71 days, excuse me. Word had spread quickly of the two plane crash survivors who had escaped death, and the story became even more incredible when they shared that 14 more had survived and were waiting to be rescued at the crash site. The next day, the Chilean Air Rescue Service dispatched helicopters to rescue the remaining survivors. Nando had told the air rescue team that the altimeter in the Fairchild read 7,000 feet, but when they asked if it would be easy enough to find, he said no. Although he did not want to get into that helicopter, he remembered that he had promised the boys that he would return for them. So despite his new intense fear of flying, he got in the helicopter to help direct them to the crash site. As he directed the men flying the helicopters, they almost didn't believe that he had actually climbed the mountains between where they had taken off and where he was directing them, until finally Nando spotted the Fairchild. The rescue itself was incredibly difficult. They had to load up helicopters with two to three men at a time, but that was the easy part. Actually flying out of there was incredibly dangerous and scary. Some of the guys almost wished that they had stayed in their quote-unquote safety on the ground at the Fairchild because as they were flying, they asked these helicopter pilots, is this okay? Like, are we going to be safe? Because it was very precarious and... Although the pilots were like, yes, we'll be okay, their faces told a very different story. Dude, you got to say that confidently. So it was... Dude, these people have been in a plane crash. Yeah. Even if you're going down, give some confidence. Exactly. Yeah, they've been on the mountain for 72 days. But when they reached the greenery, they were completely overjoyed since they had not seen grass or flowers in 72 days. Once they were all safely on the ground, they enjoyed coffee and chocolate and cheese and other foods that had been prepared for them. Upon being examined by doctors, they found that all of the men were suffering from undernourishment, vitamin deficiencies, blistered lips, conjunctivitis, and various skin infections, but none of them were in critical condition. Wow, that's amazing. I know. Dude, I would be so excited for coffee after all that yeah i was thinking all the people who are daily coffee drinkers what do you do i mean you're starving in a survival situation but you also have a caffeine headache yeah i mean at least for the first week yeah that's the least that's the least of their worries i know but like on top of it all oh you have you're having pretty severe withdrawal well yeah i mean a few of them really hit their heads when the plane had like crashed so they had headaches for other reasons as well yeah. so so caffeine was the least of their worries actually when they went to the tail when they found the tail finally they had found like a little bit of instant coffee and the guys who were like at the tail made really weak like coffee flavored water so they did have a little tiny taste of it at one point but definitely not like what they got at the village when they were finally safe yeah But kind of crazy that none of them were in critical condition. Yeah. Amazing. So it actually turned out that Carlito's father, one of the player's fathers, had been the one pushing for the reopening of the search and even used his own plane to go search in the Andes himself. And when he got the news that the survivors had been found and Carlitos was among them, he was overcome with joy. It was late December when they were rescued, so they were able to be home with their families for Christmas, which was awesome. Only 16 of the original 45 survived the 72 days on the mountain. 
Many of the survivors even went back to recover the bodies of the dead and gave them a proper burial. They also have been back to that spot a few times over the years just to visit and reflect, and they even camped next to the cross they made, which brought up a lot of emotion for everyone. But there has been a lot of media that has come out of the story. There are multiple books from the survivors talking about their story. There are multiple documentaries and the 1993 movie Alive, which is actually very accurate to their actual experience because many of the survivors were on the set with the directors and were leading them along the way. And also the book that I read to, you know, research this case is almost a direct mirror of the movie. So even down to like little things that they actually said are like in the movie. So if you're interested in actually, you know, kind of understanding their experience a little bit more, feel free to watch the movie. It's on Amazon. So (laughs) check it out. But the survivors of the crash remained really close after being rescued and returning to normal life. And they all actually live in the same area that they grew up in and they see each other regularly. They go to the same churches, their children attend the same schools, they've attended each other's weddings and all this, you know, good, wholesome community stuff. And most of the families of those who died are there as well. So they stayed a very tight-knit community, which is, I think, pretty amazing. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I I imagine how you can't be close after all that that you guys went through together. Yeah, I mean, you've definitely trauma bonded. Yeah, for sure. But that is where my story ends. That's the story of the Uruguayan rugby team that crashed in the Andes Mountains. Yeah, I mean, what a marathon of survival. I can't believe they lived off of just eating people for 71 days. Yeah such a horrible decision to have to come to, but they really survived. And I mean, the fact that they came out with no like serious complications and they were all not in critical condition when they came out. I mean, clearly they survived like well. Yeah. It wasn't fun, but they managed to make the best of a really horrifying situation. I also really wonder if the avalanche actually helped them out because it insulated the plane. Probably. To a degree, at least. Yeah, I mean, they did end up digging it out, but for the blizzard that they had to endure, I mean, if if the back of the plane was open when the blizzard was happening, I mean, I wouldn't be su- I wouldn't be surprised if they died because yeah. of that. So maybe in a way it did kind of help, but it also killed like eight of them in one yeah, go. So the other incredible feat of this story is the hike out. Yeah, how two people were able to climb. What I imagine what must have been multiple mountains. Yes. And their bodies almost gave out, but they just went into a trance and crawled their way at times literally through the Andes Mountains. Yes. Yeah. Do you know how many miles it actually was? I don't have the exact number, but I mean, it was far enough that they had to, you know, fly the helicopter over there. And the guy flying the helicopter was like, I don't know how you survived that. Yeah. Just built different. Seriously. I mean... Yeah, multiple snowy covered mountains. I mean, it's not like when they got to the peak of that first mountain to the west and they looked out, they could see the grass or the greenery or anything. So they had to have hiked farther than they could have even seen at the top of a mountain. Yeah, multiple times over. Yeah. But anyway, that story has been suggested to me multiple times, clearly for a reason. It's definitely one of the most incredible feats I think we've ever talked about. For sure. But anyway, why don't we have a bit of a palate cleanser to get out of plane crash land? What is your good thing? 
Yeah, my good thing is uh, work-related this week, but pretty much I moved from planning and designing to actually doing what I was planning. So cool. it makes me feel like I have more of a purpose, I guess. Okay. And I enjoy this part of like the project cycle better anyway. So Nice. We love That's happening this week. We love good work progress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my good thing is much smaller than that, but I had a nice little piece of pecan pie for lunch. Oh yeah. Love pecan pie. Love pecan pie. I can't believe <laughs> it took me like 24 years of my life to discover that pecan pie is as incredible as it is. But we got there and uh, now I will never pass it up. Hard to beat. Yeah. Um, but anyways, thank you guys again for being here this whole time. We appreciate you and this wouldn't be a thing without you. So hats off to you as well. Amen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you would like to vote on the poll that has recently gone up for the bonus episode number nine, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival that you would like to share with us, send it to nottodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. <laughs> And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah.